politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, independent conservatives and forgotten taxpayers to the one and only CR podcast here at Blaze Media, Tuesday, October 27th. And you guys are really forgotten taxpayers because I guess if you and I don't riot, burn, loot and beat attack cops, we don't get our needs taken care of, even though our needs are the ones that are specified in the Constitution to secure domestic tranquility. Today, we're going to have a very deep discussion with a very special guest who is an amazing strategic thinker about the long term. Who's going to win this election? I don't mean next Tuesday. I mean the perpetual civilization struggle that we are in against a ruling elite that's endemic, not just of the America or American political class, but really the global political class, that these people are rotten to the core. They do not believe in the basic tenets of American values, of even civilizational values, that were to some degree upheld by both political parties or spectrums in any Western society until fairly recently. But now the business world, the media world, the governing class, they believe in tyranny and anarchy. Tyranny for some, anarchy for others. We see that on display. And our side doesn't get involved in elections. We use Trump as a crutch rather than a cudgel for our agenda. And therein lies the problem. Here we are, four years after that euphoric victory, and we have the worst form of tyranny through the COVID cult and the worst form of anarchy through BLM. And, and, it, and it's stark. The dichotomy is so stark. The fact that the same day you could see images of law enforcement walking around Jewish neighborhoods and Jewish institutions in New York City, criminalizing their existence, life, liberty, property, religious services, while watching in Philadelphia now, one after another, cops getting beaten and chased by the most violent criminals and nothing happens to them. Murder is now up 42% in Atlanta, 41% in Philly, 38% in Oakland, 30% in Miami, 25% in LA, and 20% in Dallas. But it's also up in smaller cities as well, like Nashville. And we're basically seeing, as I warned, I want you to never forget, and this is a good segue for our discussion today, never want you to forget that in those first few days of this insurrection from Antifa and BLM, at the end of May, before we even knew the details of what happened with Floyd, guess what happened? There was a debate in the Trump administration. Trump intuitively wanted to do what George H.W. Bush did. I mean, I'm just telling you, in this spectrum of temperament, ideology, you know, H.W. Bush would be considered the polar opposite of Trump. And yet he gave a resolute speech with the Rodney King riots. And that was pretty much just confined to one city, 
Mainly, this was clearly blowing up all over the country at that point in May. And Brooke Rollins and Jared Kushner asked Trump to stand down. And and I had warned at the time that you are basically creating a right for anyone, any criminal, for whatever reason, that winds up dead with an altercation with cops who happens to be black and you can't do anything about it, that is going to become a new right. And we're seeing that all over the country now. Every time a black criminal charges police with a knife, saw it in Lancaster, saw it now in in Philadelphia, just a little bit to the east, they now get to destroy 30 cops injured. One was hit by a car on purpose. This is CNN from May 31st. Over the weekend, some aides sought to convince Trump using that that um against using violent rhetoric after he wrote on Twitter that when the looting starts, the shooting starts, warning language that could inflame an already combustible situation and would not appear presidential. During a staff call Friday, Trump's top domestic policy aide, Brooke Rollins, argued for a measured response to riots the night before. Advice that was echoed by Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Several advisors feared and hoped to avoid another Charlottesville moment. And we saw that the president was talked off invoking the Insurrection Act and coming in strongly. Well, what is he going to do were he to win a second term? This is really important, folks. We have now set a baseline that as long as you are black, you are violated by police. You, you, you are an object of injustice. When the reality is the exact opposite. As I noted in my article yesterday, straight off, hot off the presses, from the Bureau of Justice Statistics annual report on incarceration, the imprisonment rate of the black population is down to the lowest level since 1989. The general population is 1995. We've been letting thousands of criminals out the door. We haven't been locking up new ones, but even more so among blacks because of this basically basic, basically nothing more than affirmative action that if you happen to be black, then you don't get locked up. Folks, the incarceration of all criminals, including black criminals, in the 90s and early part of the 2000s, it was responsible for tens of thousands of fewer black homicide victims. If you look at the trajectory in the 80s, the murders we were having each year, 25,000 a year got up to that that level. I'm sorry, what did I say, 25,000? No, it was more than that. It was over 30,000. And per capita, it's overwhelmingly black homicide victims Their lives were saved. Now their lives are not saved because we've reversed the trend. It's literally a crisscross. Crime was up in the 70s and 80s. Incarceration was lower. When we increased incarceration in the ensuing two decades, violent crime plummeted by 70%, including homicides. Now over the last decade, 
We started reversing that trend in incarceration and really accelerated it recently. Now crime is going up again. Murders are going up. Almost all of the homicide victims in these major cities we cited are blacks. This is the narrative that is missing. Trump actually talked about this for years before Jared Kushner got a hold of him. Are we going to have that Trump back? So with us today to answer that question and many more is a guest I really should have had on a long time ago. I don't know why I haven't had him on. A dear friend of mine, Rich Higgins. Now, those of you who really follow the news closely might have heard of him. He was pushed out from the National Security Council Strategic Planning Office, I believe last July, or two years ago actually, when he published a memo. A memo that relates to our national security more than anything else the national security uh, apparatus deals with. Because it talked about the civilization battle we are locked in. The deep state. the, The problem that... Basically, even when you and I win elections, we don't win elections because the other side still wins, and that Trump would be confronted with this deep state unless it was dealt with. And of course, he was pushed out by McMaster, who was the head of the NSC at the time. And Rich really is a guy you want to have around for this discussion. Long-term strategic thinking. The discussion my colleagues refuse to engage in. From 2011 to 2013, Higgins managed a classified project for SOCOM. Um, from 2010 to 2011, he served as the chair of the Special Operations and Low Intensity Conflict at the National Defense University. Uh, he worked at DOD's Irregular Warfare Support Program for a while. Um, and obviously, eventually, he was on the Trump campaign and lent his credibility and his experience in national security. But again, this is not just national security in terms of foreign policy, but in terms of strategic thinking against all enemies, domestic and foreign. And the president really appreciated his guidance. He was brought into the administration, but like so many other patriots, wound up being pushed out. We wound up playing an away game when we should have had home field advantage. Because policy and personnel started to go backwards early on in this administration after what seemed like a couple of months of success. So how are we going to reverse that trend if Trump wins a second term? Well, having lived this experience from beginning to end, campaign, beginning of the first uh, term, getting pushed out, and now still very much involved as we look towards the second term, is Rich Higgins himself. Rich, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Daniel. It's great to be with you. All righty. So, Rich, I don't know how to get this conversation under 40 minutes because we have so much going on, but this will likely be the first of many installments together um, about an array of issues. But I want to start, obviously, with your new book. And you have a book titled The Memo, 20 Years Inside the Deep State Fighting for America, Um You guys could get this on Amazon. It's for sale now. Very riveting book. Um, Unlike other books that are kind of like tell all my experience in administration, this is actually the strategic planning 
for the future. It gives you the blueprint of what the other side is doing, what we should do about it. And this is really the memo that he originally published that got him kicked out. Could you just give us the five-minute elevator speech on what your book is about and how it fits into the time we live in now? Well, Daniel, in writing the book, uh, what I wanted to do is to show people, you know, a view from inside, if you will, right? There's a lot of public rhetoric out there about, you know, the deep state and, uh, you know, you know all the names now, right? Lisa Page, Peter Strzok, McCabe, you know, have somebody who knew or knew of these actors uh, had operated inside the, inside the same halls of power as them, uh, inside the counterterrorism community in particular, and to give you kind of a view, uh, a patriot's view from inside. And so, you know, the 20-year story is kind of about my personal evolution uh, in terms of understanding what would bring somebody who, you know, who's a bona fide credentialed member of the quote-unquote deep state to support President Trump and to support his agenda. And so I do this through, you know, through the series, of, uh, through a series of stories that takes you through uh, my time in the army, my time in Iraq, my time working inside the Pentagon, uh, then up to supporting Trump and uh, into the Trump White House with our, you know, our quote unquote invasion of the institutions, uh, which was driven off largely uh, in those early battles that you mentioned and resulted in me being fired uh, by H.R. McMaster uh, for pushing uh, the agenda that I'm sure your listeners would support. But that, uh, you know, the, the uh, corporatist, globalist interests, uh, you know, saw as a threat. Uh, and so, you know, the, I, you know, I'm not really a uh, I'm not really a book writer, if you will. You know, I don't I don't like the uh, public notoriety per se, but I think it was an important story to tell. So I, you know, I took the approach of uh, speaking for, you know, the tens of thousands of patriots that do still exist inside the system, albeit under uh, horrific uh statist leadership so when you wrote this book i you know i saw it and i said to myself you know what i'll wait to have you on till after the election everyone's busy with the election now we'll see what happens but then i said to myself you know what this is really most appropriate right now right now as many on our side feel like trump does have a chance of um, winning another upset victory it's not guaranteed and by by no means but it's very much a possibility how could we ensure we don't make the same mistakes again, where our side will be doubly as euphoric as they were last time? Oh, my gosh, despite all odds, Trump won. They're going to continue to use Trump's mere existence as the man officially sitting in the Oval Office as a pacifier, as what I call political fentanyl to get doped up. While meanwhile, the left is using his presence to gin up their side to just completely cheat steal, violate, break all the rules of governance, break literally laws, the rioting, and they get away with it. And ironically, as we talk about on this show so often, you look at the debt and deficit, you look at the dependency and welfare, you look at the COVID fascism, you look at the anarchy in the streets, we are worse off than we were four years ago. You know, forget about pointing fingers whose fault it is. The reality is, you know, we did not push policy outcomes, the left did. I think the president has really turned the corner and it has genuinely made some strides on foreign policy. Obviously, we see that in our whole approach to Israel and, you know, blowing up 30 years of failed policies on that. I think there's a lot to give him credit for. But, you know, what's most important here at home in our own country, uh, we, we still have, um, as I'm talking to you, I'm literally getting screenshots 
from a border agent friend of mine who's in Intel at DHS, his computer screen. As we have these animals run amok in Philadelphia, harming innocent people, um, injuring cops, they are literally talking about white uh, white ring, wing of supremacism, uh, you know, these white supremacist groups. That is what their concern is. We are four years into this administration, and DHS is still as involved with the Muslim Brotherhood as they always were. They're still involved with this false flag. And, and like, you know, when I was younger, I, I used to think the deep state was more like HUD and EPA. You know, the guys that get in that are, you know, save the whale leftists. But now I realize they're not even the biggest problem, not by a long shot. It's the people often, you know, in national security, FBI, CIA, DHS, DOD, certainly State Department. And you think, okay, maybe they're leftists. They're politically correct. But come on, if we have a live threat to our civilization like BLM and Antifa, they're not going to ignore it. And now we're like, oh, my gosh, they will. Um, that's where we are now. So how does this change in a second term? They'll not only, they'll not only ignore it, they'll cheer it on. I mean, <laughs> my, my, one, my, one, my one point to you, Daniel, would be, um, you know, I don't think President Trump was elected to fix everything that you discussed, but you have to go back to where we were four or five years ago, okay? I think he recognized something that many in Washington didn't, and I think he perhaps underestimated it, which is that America itself, the constitutional republic, is under attack. It's under attack from enemies external. It's under attack from enemies internal. And the thing that's so insidious about you brought up the COVID thing and the COVID fascism, the COVID fascism, the the COVID itself is the fulcrum on which our external and internal enemies collaborate and gain leverage you know, over with one another in sync against us. It really is frightening, right? So, you know, in terms of what I think is going to happen, I, I think in 2016, having been, you know, a campaign advisor and then uh, participated with the transition team and early in the administration, we were like the Allied Expeditionary Force in World War II, right? We knew, hey, there's going to be a war over there in Europe. Let's get on our boats. You know, we landed in, in France and started our way across, and then we got our butts handed to us. We had to retweet, you know, retreat all the way back to Dunkirk and then get driven off the beach. And that's largely what happened to the America First agenda in the first six months to a year of the administration. It's slowly been eking its way out, you know, almost sabrosa in the past three years. But it still isn't what we thought we voted for in the form of, quote, unquote, campaign Trump in 2016. Well, I think campaign Trump wants to be unleashed. He's had he's had these uh, you know internal personnel challenges he's had to overcome. Some of them are you know, are just the fact that the president himself is not a, a classic conservative in the sense that yep. you and I would understand it. He's American, but he's not a classic conservative. However, he's become more conservative in his time in the presidency because I think, like most of us, we now see, and this is his great gifting. The president's great gifting is he has caused the uh, Marxist globalist left to completely come unglued and to expose themselves as nothing but destruction and, and chaos uh, and the chaos agents that they are. So, you know, and I would say this back in 2015, 2016, I always saw President Trump as a counter-revolutionary candidate, whereas, you know, the left was just dragging and the Republicans were doing nothing about it. The left was dragging the country further and further and further into this Marxist globalist mess. And uh, the president rightly saw this happening. 
He also saw the Chinese taking advantage of it. And he ran, I think, to stop it, which is why neither political party backed him. The Republicans probably opposed him more forcefully than the Democrats did. Um, and I think what you've seen happen is everybody now sees these clear lines. And when you look at the, the polling of independents, uh, I think that's really the where, where you see um, the, you know, the state of America actually is. They're, they're 100% over for President Trump, not because they like his personality, not because they even like his policies, but because they're fearful of the abyss that the left seeks to take us into. Um, you know, in terms of getting things fixed in the second term, if you know, he's able to win re-election, I think it's really very simple. He has to approach um, his second term uh, like the World War II veterans did. They're going back to Normandy, right? And this time, they're going to fight their way in. Uh, and this, you know, this includes personnel. This includes institutional reform, policy, public policy reform. Uh, a renewed sense of purpose uh, that is really about the restoration of the republic. So doesn't that require us to strike very, very quickly and swiftly, not to kind of dip your toe into that second term, but to have the recognition that second terms often don't go well for Republican presidents? Certainly, no matter what happens, there's going to be fatigue against him in the midterms, um, that you have to strike while the iron is hot right when you have that shocking victory, which hopefully would be next week. Isn't the time frame very short with that? I think so. I think it has to start November 4th, right? I, I think, you know, if, 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 if I read my card right, I think that the president has a November 4th plan. He certainly does on personnel. And we're hearing inklings of it popping up through some forums like Axios. I know that to be the case. They're definitely looking at the personnel situation. And the, and the term I've heard bantered around people I know who are affiliated with the campaign are, we want President Trump to have the first term he never really had due to what happened during the transition and then the subsequent moves by Mueller, et cetera, which is great. Again, I agree with you. He's got a very short time window, perhaps six months to a year, where he can re he'll really finally have, uh, if he can keep McConnell on board, if McConnell's still there, um, you know, he has maybe six to 12 months of open fields running where he can really do some things. Uh, and it remains to be seen if we're, we, you know, if we can put the team around him to make it happen. That said, I, I think he, you know, I definitely think he does deserve a chance uh, to do the reboot, if for no other reason he's been so successful in achieving a lot of his goals, despite these insane headwinds that he's been up against, uh, many of which emanate from the Republican Party itself. So, so that's what kind of bothers me, what you just said, and, and this is the biggest sticking point I've had with Trump. Um, and maybe you could walk us through this from your experience with the administration, actually being a victim of this yourself, and also knowing the president personally very well. Um, I understand Trump is not exactly where you and I are on every last thing, certain fiscal things, maybe certain social things. He's not a traditional conservative, but clearly he's gotten more conservative as the left has forced him to. And he kind of realizes like, whoa, whoa I mean, these people are just insane. Um, so, you know, I, I knew there were going to be things I wouldn't always agree with, but then there were things that really did shock me. And like I talked about at the, at the top of the hour with the rioting and everything, that was really his bread and butter issue. Trump has flipped around on a lot of issues throughout his career, you know, even before he went into politics. But on that issue, I mean, you go back to his books 20, 30 years ago, he was very consistent. Like, even when we were actually locking up more people in the 90s, we don't lock up enough of them. Everyone knows we're too weak on crime. And like, he flipped so spectacularly 
I mean, I'll never forget, you know, I supported Cruz in the primary. And that night that he lost in Indiana, I turned to my colleagues and I was like, you know, at least the one thing I know will be done with is jailbreak. Like, you know, Trump definitely is not going to go for that. We had our concerns with him about some other issues. And like, I mean, what the heck? I mean, certain things I know he's kind of compelled. It's kind of the Jim Baker and Reagan thing that there aren't a lot of conservatives around and. There aren't a lot of good personnel choices. But when I saw so many people like you downright being pushed out and then like the epitome of globalists like Mnuchin, I mean, Mnuchin is indistinguishable from who would have been there in a Biden administration. And he's the one who made all these covid deals that not just bankrupted ourselves, but literally gave all the Democrat governors all the cash they needed to stay afloat and to embark on this unprecedented lockdown without ever taking responsibility. I mean, one after another, where, how come everyone tells me, because look, I've never spoken to the president personally. He knows of me, um, but, you know, I never spoke to him, but I hear from people who do that he really gets it. When, when you speak to him, he gets a lot of the things that I'm saying, but then we see these policies that are like 180 degrees the opposite. How does that happen? Well, I think one of the things that you see happen to him from time to time is that because of some of those early personnel, you know, challenges that he ran into, um, I'll say that he gets he gets he gets to a point where you know you when everybody around you, I'll I'll, I'll I, something I'm more familiar with is like the foreign policy side of things, right? So I don't know exactly what transpired with uh, COVID or what happened with the you know the decisions of the lockdowns and the, and the funding, but what I can talk about is what I saw happen with foreign policy, and and so often. What what I think you know the the, cha- the challenge is because he's not a uh, because he's not a career creature of Washington because you know there isn't a Trump network of people in Washington right if you go to the Bush administration there were Bush people that were brought in by the Bushes you know twenty something years ago in some cases you know thirty years ago who were sprinkled around through the bureaucracy whether they worked in the Bush administration or they knew the family, they're tied into them in some way. So they knew how to get true information out of these bureaucracies without necessarily relying upon the the normal process channels, right? The Trump administration had the challenge of they didn't have that network in place. They become very dependent upon others to provide it for them. So what would what would happen in the foreign policy side is the president would have a you know an agenda item he wanted. To, let's get out of Afghanistan, for example. Okay, and he would turn to his national security advisor, and the national security advisor would say, "Okay, I'm going to staff this through the bureaucracy." But in staffing it through the bureaucracy, the the uh, the guidance down wouldn't be give us plans to get out of Afghanistan. It would be, what do we do about Afghanistan? And then the bureaucracies would come back, these institutions would come back and say, well, we can't leave Afghanistan. So it would be, you know, we can leave 50,000 troops there or 40,000 or 30,000. And the president would be like, hey, I want to get out of there. Well, you know, these are the only three options you have. So they'd make it appear as though he had no other choice, right? And I think this happens to him often with this because because That's what they do with the lockdowns too. Exactly, exactly what happens, and I think this is this is a um, this is a challenge that afflicts. You know, the the listeners probably realize this, but this is a challenge that afflicts most presidents, and it's one of the reasons that the swamp, quote unquote, exists, is because these presidents learn over time that they have to build their own surrogate networks inside these institutions in order to get anything done. Now, I will give the Obama administration a lot of credit. The Obama administration put together a team, I'll call it you know, the Obama War Council, if you will. This was the team that met at 7.30 in the morning, right? This was 
John Brennan, Val Jarrett, Ben Rhodes, the close, trusted fellow travelers, comrades, right? That would, that would meet at 7.30. And then they'd have the official meeting at 8.30. The problem for President Trump is he doesn't have that close inner circle of bureaucratic uh, movers and shakers that know how to demand the institutions perform a certain say, you know, a certain but, way. But, but why not? That My question is, I, I understand the beginning, but I'm saying as we sit here four years into this, there were a number of people like you. I know of so many patriotic people that got nixed from the administration, ironically, by gatekeepers who are like Rubio types, Jeb Bush types, and how they even wound up in this administration is unbelievable. I get the deep state. I get the bureaucracies, the the dozen or so departments and all their agencies. But what I don't understand is the White House itself. You know, how that you don't have at arm's length this long into it. And, and we can go down the list of all these people that are, you know, like Trump will say the Koch brothers are destroying America. And then he'll have more Koch staffers than, than Bush did. Like, you know what I mean? Like they're all, all the policy guys on domestic policy um, that are making all the decisions are people like Brooke Rollins. And so with that, I'm going to ask you the 800 pound gorilla question for the second term. What happens with Jared Kushner? Um, because basically Jared you know, he's not like a total leftist. He's just kind of a technocratic guy that certainly has no experience in this. And he looks at people like us like we're crazy. And he, by by his just training and nature, he respects the type that have more of the demeanor and character and resume of the swamp. So aren't we going to continuously keep refilling the swamp until somehow he's neutralized? Or is there a way around him? Uh, look, I mean, the, the challenge with Jared is, I mean, uh, you know, and I've I've only met Jared a couple of times. He's a super nice guy. Right. And he uh, really does think he's serving the president's best interests. And again, it really he, he's another guy that I, I don't get concerned about his inputs because, you know, he, he's got portions of the portfolio that are his that don't necessarily touch upon areas that I'm concerned about. You know, you have a much broader remit that you look at, Daniel, than I do. The foreign policy, national security side, he's been for the most part in in the camp of the conservatives. Okay, I think we're we're um, we're you you went right at the concern I have is that the security situation in the country now is becoming more and more of a domestic yes. policy issue. Yes, right, and that there is some concern there. You know, does is there a way to to influence kind of how Jared is thinking about things, given the fact that we're facing this nascent direction? And it appears to be very well funded, yes. organized, and we may be looking at some significant domestic violence here coming yeah. up in the next few months. I mean, you so, know how passionate I, I've been about Islamic terror over the years, but I'll be honest with you, I've never been at a point like this in my career where ever since really early this year, I've never talked about foreign policy on my show. I can't even feel jazzed about it. Even China, when this started out, I was like all like – you know, let's go to war with China. I mean, you know, asymmetrically and things like that, obviously. And then I was like, as this went on, I said, I don't give a damn about China. China didn't do this to us. We did it to ourselves. I mean, they didn't ask us to destroy ourselves, destroy our mental health, our emotional health, our economy for this just insane voodoo, flat earth, dark age so-called science about how to deal with a virus. We did it to ourselves. The, the enemy is within. You look at Antifa and as much as I still think, you know, mass migration from the Middle East and the Muslim Brotherhood are a problem, I mean, this is much more of a direct, imminent problem now. 
you can't miss it and BLM and everything like that. And and look, I mean, look, you know, Rich, I say this as someone who is a Zionist, um, and most of my audience are, are Christian Zionists. Uh, yeah, I mean, the stuff on Israel is great, and, and Jared's been a part of that. But I almost don't give a darn because it's like, you know, God will take care of his land, but America is going to hell. And, and, and that's the problem. So when it comes to the lockdown stuff, when it came to the rioting, when it came to jailbreak, and, 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 and he's going to push more of that in the second term, Jared is horrendous. Yeah, look, nobody elected Jared Kushner. I, I agree with you. Okay, And I, I think that uh, a part of it is the president likes to have multiple points of view. He is somebody that the president feels he can, tr- you know, he can have his confidence, he can trust. As far as he can, you know, he knows Jared isn't going to run immediately to the media and blow him up. I think part of the problem, though, is, you know, when you have all these different viewpoints and the people that you think are providing you sort of the countervailing point where, you know, if he's keeping Jared around for the point of providing you sort of the liberal New York, Upper East Side point of view on things, great. But when the bureaucracy is providing you a vision or an opportunity, a, a direction that isn't so far different from that. I think this is what the president didn't expect. You know, the president had in his mind, the generals were arch conservatives, right? (laughs) The director of the CIA was an arch conservative. But what we're finding is that's not, in fact, the case anymore. The mighty citadels of the the protectorate of the republic, the FBI, the CIA, the DOD, they've fallen. And this is what the president, I think, the the president has a, a mission in front of him, which is, all of those immigrants, you know, during their hijra from the Middle East were able to get as far as they got with the refugee policies, etc., because of how far the Marxists had gotten inside of our institutions, right? How far they've gotten inside the university allows them to push the pseudoscience like these masks, okay, which every ninth grade biology student knows is absurd, okay? But the pseudoscience gives the Marxist, the status, something that they need, which is pseudo-authority. And it is the pseudo-authority that they're abusing, right? And I think, like I said earlier, the, the, the fulcrum on which our foreign communist enemies, China in particular, and the domestic Marxist enemies, the, the, their fulcrum on which they leverage, and collaborate, and drive, and attack this country is that COVID narrative, okay? It is the population control measures deployed underneath it. It is the psychological warfare that is the accoutrement to it. It is information warfare, which is unbelievable, all right? And all of this is happening right now. Now, the, the president, again, it, the, this, this goes to the, the nature of the challenge. When he thinks about COVID, he thinks it's a biochemical public health problem, right? He doesn't see it through the same prism that I do, which is it's an irregular warfare, political warfare problem. And it ha- thus, it has to be attacked and handled differently. And so it really is about uh, getting uh, American national security strategic thinkers to understand that the Chinese and the communists don't view war the same way we do. Yes. And I encourage your listeners, if they haven't, if, I'd encourage your listeners, you can go online and you can get a PDF of it. It is a book that was written in 1999 by two Chinese strategists called Unrestricted Warfare. And in this book on pages 144 to 148, they describe a specific attack scenario of using biochemical agents 
coupled with psychological warfare, information and economic warfare. And ask yourself, is this not exactly what we're seeing in America today? And the amazing thing is they come out with all these studies and everything. They were the ones who pushed the ventilators, which they knew didn't work and actually killed more people. They were the ones who pushed everything. The The, the funniest thing is the masks that are made in China with the, the slave labor, labor of the, the Muslims they oppress. I mean, you know, and then this has become like the single biggest symbol. I mean, it's it, 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 like the mask thing. And, and I think this really speaks to your type of analysis I, the mask thing is just – it's phenomenal. I, I mean we have never seen anything like it in our lifetime to, You know, because I – you know I'm a big generalist and I cover a lot of issues. And you know, I'll run up against the criminal industrial complex. The crime thing is one of their top, top issues. The homosexual agenda, I mean that is like the holy of holies. But the mask stuff it like even supplants that. Like that is the top issue that that is why the censorship is a hundred percent on that issue. They have an algorithm that they block any last thing I put out on on mass. We're like joking around with different ways to kind of title an article to maybe get a, get around that. Why, in your mind, I want to hear it in your words. Being a really strategic thinker in asymmetrical warfare, irregular warfare, you worked at SOCOM, you understand what makes the enemy tick. Why are the masks such an important tool for these people? Well, number one, um, they're an incredible tool of psychological warfare, right? Because they have the effect of turning child against parent, uh, neighbor against neighbor, uh, colleague against colleague, uh, breaking up alliances. Uh, it's, an, it's a, it's a, a massively divisive um, form of population control. Okay, I think there's a symbolism involved in it, and that symbolism is uh, it, that you know that symbolism signifies to people watching um, compliance, right? A willingness to yield to the pseudo authority wrought by this fake science. And once you're willing to yield to a pseudo authority in the statist communist mind, you're willing to yield. Period. And I think, you know, so when they when they're watching you know, and you can and you can see this, I mean, you can go into an area and there are some areas you're traveling the country where you see almost nobody wearing a mask. You go into other areas and you'll see that, you know, it's an, it's strictly adhered to by sort of the societal norm in the area. Um, my myself never mask up. I've put on a mask to go into a grocery store uh, because the grocery store requires it. But beyond that, I never mask up. And I think the the you know the thing that people don't understand is that these little these little acts that they've been having us do for a number of years have have you know inculcated uh, American culture with sort of this uh, state of hostile dependency where you know we we're willing to claim uh, conservative heritage because we you know fly a Gatson flag on our pickup truck and have a shotgun. But the reality is that being a conservative is so much more than that. And preserving the republic is going to take more than going to the range once a month. That's what concerns me, what you just said. Aren't you shocked at how swiftly the left has implemented their agenda with very little pushback? I mean, I am shocked at how long people have complied with this stuff for so long. And like, you know, the truth be told, and I'm curious to get your take on this. 
if anything, I'm actually seeing larger, more robust protests against these policies in other countries than in America. Again, I'm I'm grateful more than for any other reason, President Trump's election, because I think he is um, he's a health and welfare checkup on the state of the republic. Right. And I think we were very close to dying. Okay, we would have died on the table had Hillary been elected. All the legal structures were in place to take us down. The plans had been written. And, uh, you know, we would have woken up in four or eight years and we would never have been able to crawl out of the grave. President Trump's election woke us up. Now, they're starting to throw dirt on us, but we're awake now and we're starting to climb back up. But I think when you look at the lack of reaction to the covid masking thing, look at the covid thing in general, right, the running up of the national debt up to what is it, 30 trillion dollars now. And (laughs) it's just insane amount of money. Okay, insane. Look at. The things that we're allowing them to do to our children, never mind to our children. I mean, that there, there comes a point at which it's unco- it is absolutely unconscionable. There comes a point at which to stand up and do what's right is going to be demanded. And you started to see it in suburban women. I, I've been telling the people I know with the Trump campaign this. Suburban women I know, everybody in my sphere, my wife's friends, they're pissed about the school situation. They're pissed about making kids wear masks. And they're pissed. Well, Republicans are promoting this just as much as the Democrats. Correct. They are. And I think and I think one of the things that that's showing us is, you know, what what are what are the real dividing lines here? Right. And I think we may not like where those dividing lines are. You know, we may have 10 percent or 50 percent or 20 percent of the population that actually understands where we are. But that's our 20 percent. At least we know where we are. Now we can set about repairing it and fixing it. You know, I, I did up a chart the other day, and it was looking at, okay, you know, the president, we'll give, we'll give the president, we'll give Mitch credit. They got their judges, okay? He's got the judiciary moving in the right general direction. Even though you and I both know that the left owns the state and local courts, they still own the, uh, you know, the judicial, judicial process as a, as, a, as a whole. But if you look at it... Um, you know, we have to take back the government institutions, the universities, the international bodies, uh, Congress, the media, the social media. I mean, it really can be overwhelming at times, right? So you as the president are, are, are tasked with kind of managing your way out of this. But a, a really important first step in figuring that out is, okay, what, you know, what do I need to do? You know, how, how deep inside is the rot? How, how inset has it? covid and the um, national debt run-up, and the rioting, and the actions of Antifa, and the Chinese communists. And so we've got, uh, you know, there's a lot on our plate, Daniel. There's a lot on our plate. And I think we can handle it. But, you know, we, we've got to dig into our little foxhole here as conservatives and, and you know, get, get ready for what's coming. And we've got to fight our way out of this. We are decisively engaged right now, which means we are going to have to fight our way out of this. Yep. I mean, a potential Trump victory would only be the beginning, not the end of this battle. But let me ask you another big question. I know this is an uncomfortable question. A lot of people don't want to deal with. I mean, but that's the Republican Party as a whole. And, you know, let's say you are, you know, the SOCOM commander or you're um, directing an operation in a certain area. Let's say you're in Afghanistan. I don't know. And 80 percent of your special operators are compromised. They're really working for 
um, the Taliban or ISIS, whatever you're engaged in, whichever enemy you're engaged in. And, you know, you have a couple that are very patriotic that that still are part of that mission. How in the world could you accomplish anything? In other words, what I'm saying is, you know, Trump, had he somehow run as an independent, I think we could have done great things. But as you yourself mentioned, I mean, part of the problem is that, you know, rather than him draining the Republican Party, to a certain extent, the Republican Party drained him and just brought them into his him into their ways. I mean, it was just so yeah, I mean, you know, I've been, I've tweeted this out before. It's just so painful sometimes hearing Trump just word for word champion this grating crap that we've heard for 20 years from these Republicans, and he'll just do it in his style. You know, like he does everything bigly. So if he does establishment, he'll do it bigger than anyone else. And it's like, is there really a blueprint? Because I've worked primaries. It doesn't work. We win one out of 100. You know, there's a whole reason why we can't win them. Um, and then and then now they get Trump to endorse the establishment guys against his own MAGA people nine out of ten times. How do you do this when they're I mean, I'm not talking about like the Republican Party. They're not quite as conservative as me, you know, on some of the fiscal programs. No, no, no. I'm talking about on the hardest of hardcore cultural Marxism, like the new stuff, not just like the stuff that was established maybe 30 years ago. They are totally on board, promoting, helping as their own it's like COVID is the issue of our time that is the civilization killer okay we're not even talking about the new deal or something i mean this is this is where it's at we could literally only name two governors christy Nome and ron DeSantis, who are providing somewhat of a contrast to what the left is putting out you have counties that trump has won by 40 50 points you know, I've given up on a good part of the country. We're not going to get that back. But at least, you know, if we could have our fiefdoms, if Biden wins, if Trump wins, no matter what, that in a state like West Virginia, we're going to not have cultural Marxism. No, you have the COVID communism, the transgenderism in every county of every state. And often Republicans are either promoting it or doing nothing about it. How do we go on without a new party? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I honestly believe that. I, I honestly believe that the Republicans are at that inflection point. I mean, you know, the the, the you go back to the, the the birth of the Republican Party, right? I mean, it was birthed as sort of an you know, uh, not sort of as an anti-slavery movement yep. first, right? And I think what has to happen now is the Republican Party either needs to pick up the mantle of this anti-Marxist, anti-globalist. You know, policy position that so many of the American people want, and more and more of them are beginning to want. And they, you know, they could they could perhaps onboard it, but you know, at this point, I agree with you. I think uh, Christy Noem and Ron DeSantis are the only two have really shown themselves to be capable of standing uh, in the storm. And um, I think we really are at that sort of an inflection point. I, I told people many times, uh, I've tweeted about it on Twitter, um, that, you know, as Lincoln was elected to stop the spread of slavery, so Trump was elected to stop the spread of Marxism. And the difference is that Lincoln uh, had, you know, years of years of advocacy and understanding this. I think President Trump, 
you know, he's always been sort of a, a production capitalist, anti-communist, at least in terms of yeah. his ideological underpinnings from his childhood. But I don't think he ever thought he was going to have to fight this fight in the way yes. it, has, you know, it has manifested itself in, in reality for him. And uh, we, we were at one of those critical inflection points in history. There's no question about it. And by the way, you could find uh, Rich's musings on Twitter at Rich Higgins underscore D.C., um, you can find him on, on on Twitter there. Make sure to catch him as well as buy his book. Um, Rich, I mean, this is again, and, and and I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but there is no good answer to that because I think we all know and we have known for quite a while we need a new party. I mean, I wrote this already five years ago when I said that you look at the Republican Party's birth, and it was born out of the fact that they had. You know, civilization was pretty similar. You didn't have people believing, you know, half the people believing a man's a woman, a marriage is this, a life is this, you know, uh, a citizen is this, a border is this, right? It was one issue. It was one issue that that seemed to really divide people. And that was the issue of slavery was the fundamental issue of the time. Are blacks human being or as, um, you know, uh, uh, Roger Taney in, in, in his, his famous decision that the judicial supremacists would still have us keep, uh, that, that they're nothing but property and, and uh, uh, freeing them would be a violation of property rights. So that was a bridge that you couldn't divide like the many we have nowadays, but it was one back then. And it became apparent, and, and this was after only 27 years or so of the Whig Party, that they no longer provided any bold contrast after the Kansas-Nebraska Act. They were, okay, like, you know, you you failed. I mean, there's nothing left, and we need a new party. Here we are 30 years after Reagan, 32 years after Reagan, and that is longer than the entire shelf life of the Whig Party. 32 years where we have not had a cogent party that has sought to provide a bold contrast on any of the civilization-breaking issues. It could be corona-fascism. It could be the gender-bending licentiousness and all everything that follows from there. It could be anything on fiscal policy. I mean, healthcare, forget it. I mean, no bold contrast on that. They literally both love Obamacare now. No understanding of what healthcare should look like. On and on and on. I mean, practically, the only issue is really like Israel. And and maybe like taxes, but but that's actually hurt us because we have what I call low tax socialism. It's kind of the worst mix and people don't have to pay for the socialism. I almost would wish we had higher taxes would make people fight more to a certain extent. And it allows the corporations to join in with the cultural Marxism on the cheap because we save them from the one issue they want from us. So we have the worst of all. And, you know. Everyone thought Trump could save us. I never thought even a more well-grounded conservative, like let's say you had Ron DeSantis as president, very deep guy, very deep understanding, totally gets the issues. But still, I mean, you 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 can't you can't run a SOCOM operation if your operators are compromised. I mean, you know, if even two of them are compromised, much less eighty percent of them are. No, but what what you do is if you know who the good guys are. You can give the bad guys something to do, and then you can set out with the good guys to do good things, right? And this is really the challenge of the Trump administration, which is, you know, you don't have to fix every institution overnight. You have to find the good guys inside the system and work with them. Look, a a quick story for you is back when Ronald Reagan was president, the first task he gave his chief of staff 
was to take back now this is you know of course this is 1980 um take the federal phone book right this is pre-email take the federal phone book and have it updated as soon as possible and the reason why is because reagan understood that he had to be able to reach down into the bureaucracy to find the people worth talking to because the bureaucracies have political you know, agendas of their own. Most of them hew leftist status, right, for cultural reasons and others. And I think that President Trump can find those good guys inside the system. He can work with the good guys inside the system to begin the institutional reforms that are necessary, keep the bad guys busy doing whatever they, whatever they need to do, and just work from within the system to, to, to fix it. Now, is he going to do that in four years? No. But I think the, the thing he's charted to do is he has, much as Lincoln got the South to expose their secessionist nature in support of slavery, he's getting, you know, Trump has forced the Marxists to expose. If they aren't in charge, they're willing to destroy it. And so, we, you know, he, he can operate using this political currency he has, whereby the left has basically self-immolated and um, begin to move in a way that that seeks to restore the republic. Part of that could be even wholesale removal of some of these institutions. I mean, I, I would like him to be far more aggressive in terms of not only cutting budgets, but also cutting entire organizational structures right out. Um, you know, the, we 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 have this unbelievable um, tendency in Washington D.C. To see these institutions as forever, and this is not something that existed prior to World War II or even during World War II. Old institutions went away; new institutions were born, and um, we don't see that today at all. The the legacy program protectionism that takes place inside Congress today is just—it's horrible. And these are little things that he can chip away at over time. Um, that said, he's not going to get it all done in four years. It's his job to lay the foundation for this new, you know, a new contract with America, if you will, a new vision for the republic and, and um, you know, and, and turn it into a 20 year project to rest, to restore the republic, if you will. Well, on that note, final question before we, we uh, wrap it up here, we're at a time. As a strategic thinker, you always got to think about what your enemy's next move is. Let's say you wake up Wednesday morning and Trump wins. And let's just say it's not within a margin that you know, they could play games and contest it because obviously if it is, they will. That will be their move. But beyond that, let's say, you know, kind of like last time, he clearly won. What do you think is their immediate play and how do we combat that? Um, well, I, I'm sitting here on my desk right now. I'm reading um, Podesta's Transition Integrity Project, which I'm sure you're familiar with. But if your <laughs> listeners aren't, you re read it, and I'm, I literally, it's funny you ask that because I literally have it on page 17, game three, clear Trump win. And uh, what's frightening is that this clear Trump win scenario unleashes the most dangerous course of action of the four courses of action that they laid out in their transition integrity project research and musings. Uh, and it leads to some pretty ominous developments in. Washington State, Oregon, and California. Um, I don't think anything's off the table right now, Daniel, with these guys. Um, they have international financial backing. They have Chinese communist backing. They clearly have the ability to organize you know, nationwide riots in the infrastructure, financial and other, to support it. Um, we could be going into some pretty chop, you know, some choppy water up ahead. So you're, you're 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 thinking riots would be the lead ship in the armada 
of their response? Well, from from, well, from a political warfare standpoint, from an unconventional warfare standpoint, what we've seen being conducted over the past six months is classic what we call information preparation of the environment and operational preparation of the environment to demonstrate how weak the state is, to demonstrate the federal government's ineptitude, to demonstrate their inability to stop the riots, to demonstrate that they can control the police in specific areas, to show that governors, governments, state and local officials are on their side in certain areas, to show that resistance to their objectives is futile in those areas. We see that in St. Louis, where to defend yourself, you, know, you end up getting arrested. And this is going on in multiple places. Those actions being conducted are usually, you know, they're preludes to what comes following, which is, I don't think this and these insurrectionists have not yet released their guerrilla forces. We've seen um, two targeted assassinations. Well, one targeted assassination, one just flat out assassination. The operation in Denver was much more sophisticated than people realized. The operation in Portland was extremely sophisticated. That was not just a lone gunman. Uh, there was an entire assassination team with an information operations team. Uh, if you haven't seen that video, your listeners should check it out. So I, I think we're up against a sophisticated adversary that will use violence to achieve their ends. Um, and we'll see. I think the president will be coming out of an election if he is able to win with a clear victory like that, uh, where he has some political freedom of maneuver that he hasn't had in the past. And I think that really constrained him when, you know, the, the president's in a weird position where he can't task the secretary of defense to do something and then have the secretary of defense tell him no publicly. Right. I mean, the politics of these equations are really, really complicated. And I think because he's created, you know, the, because he's created this, um, uh, uh, I guess, I don't know if the right word isn't created. He's tolerated this sort of patient, um, this patient, passive aggressive behavior by some of his appointees. Yes. I think those days are, I think those days are numbered. I think he's going to be much more front footed and he'll have a clear public mandate to fix it. And now how he goes about doing it remains to be seen. I hope he has some guys that are knowledgeable about unconventional warfare, political warfare, information warfare, that the, the trade craft and the things he's going to be up against uh, are going to, it's going to, it could get kind of dicey, no question about it. Do you see a political side to this too, where, the, where, you know, you talk about California and Oregon, where they will just say, we are no longer part of the federal union in, in some form, which I wouldn't mind, but. <laughs> yeah, well, what, what ends up happening is that the Biden campaign uh, in in the scenario I'm referring to, uh, the Biden campaign you know, begins to encourage Western states, uh, California, Oregon, Washington State, uh, to to basically secede unless the congressional Republicans agree to a set of structural reforms uh, to ensure majority rule to go after the electoral college. I mean, it is a really oh, that's a good point. Scenario. That's a good point. I actually okay. never thought about that in your um in the scheme of things that unless you disagree with me on this, I mean, I'm pretty sure that no matter the outcome, he will lose the popular vote again. I mean, I think that's pretty, it's pretty clear. They're going to turn that into a big issue. And then uh, the other, the other thing that I, I'm uh, concerned about is that, you know, we, we have a, um, we have a, a possibility. And I think uh, Tucker Carlson's talked a little bit about this with uh, um, Darren Beatty and a few others, which is, you know, do we see a color revolution scenario pop up where if the vote is contested, right, i.e. it's not a clear Trump victory, we're, we're either contested in Pennsylvania or contested in North Carolina, 
do we have in a, a color revolution scenario take place? For your listeners, that's sort of what happened to Hosni Mubarak in Egypt in 2000, I think it was 2012, I might have been a year wrong, but where you create this crisis around the electoral legitimacy, then you have the major institutional bodies internationally, the media uh, begin to push the narrative that, you know, that Trump is not legitimate. You shut down social media and then you put rioters in the streets which is basically what happened to Mubarak. And eventually it was actually the United States and Obama who quietly asked Mubarak to leave. And they brought, you know, that ushered in the age of the Muslim Brotherhood and Morsi in Egypt. We could see a very similar scenario. And a lot, a lot, of, sign, a lot of signs are in place that that type of a scenario could play out here. I think Tucker's done a good job of covering it. I wish more people would talk about it because the thing about a color revolution is they don't work if people see it coming right? They work when people are susceptible to that external political pressure that's brought on in that scenario. But if you're expecting it to happen, it's not as effective. So those, those are kind of the two things that I, I worry most about. Clear Trump victory and a color revolution, Sarah, both of them are, both of them are worrisome. All righty. Well, we'll have you back after the election to see where things stand, no matter the outcome. But before you leave, I got to ask you, Given that you are on the campaign, what is your read using 2016 as a baseline? Is Trump better off, worse off, headed into the final week, or somewhat of a mix? Oh, he's much better off than where he was in 16. Uh, it's not even close. And, and wow. I'll tell you, my I knew I knew in six I knew in 16 he was going to win because my my mother told me he was going to win. <laughs> now <laughs> my mother is an old school Boston Democratic Democrat. And a uh, blue dog Democrat, patriotic and everything, certainly not a Marxist by any stretch. But I talked to her a couple of weeks ago and I asked her, you know, what do you think about what's going on? And she said to me, she always calls me Richie. She's like, Richie, I, I, I don't even recognize the Democrats anymore. What the hell is wrong with these people? So I think that that kind of tells you where, you know, where the average American who maybe isn't paying too close attention to what's going on, the general consensus is. They may not be all in for Trump. But the Democrats, you know, they're what what are they selling? They're selling destruction. They're selling tearing down American history. And that that, you know, that just doesn't sell. Um, I I still think uh, I still think there are a lot of people out there who believe. Very interesting. Very insightful. As always, again, you could catch uh, Rich on Twitter, Rich Higgins underscore D.C. Get his book on Amazon, The Memo, 20 years inside the deep state fighting for America. Rich, thanks so much for joining us today. All right, Dan. Hey, take care. Take care. And there you have it, folks. We are way out of time. Um, listen to the show very carefully. He's a very deep strategic thinker. Um, this is the type of guy you really want in the foxhole with you. And, you know, I, I just don't understand why a guy like that is on the outside looking in. Uh, but that that speaks to some of the failures of the last four years. But I think he is right. There are a lot of reasons to be optimistic that Trump will do a better job, but you know, we got to build a movement around that. Can't hope for it. Obviously he's got to win first. Um, you know, one of the interesting things rich once told me years ago, the first time I met him, one of the first times I met him is that the bad guys, the terrorists, they're not thinking about the 75th Ranger regiment, a couple miles outside of Raqqa. That's not what worries them or what they're concerned about, what they're involved with. What they care about is what the people on CNN and the people in our institutions are thinking. 
it's asymmetric warfare, it's irregular warfare. That is the only way America is brought down. It's from within. And he has written very long papers on this for a long time before anyone has realized it. I, I never even took Antifa that seriously until he really started talking about it. And he, he's been warning about that from day one. Um, we have terrorism within our country. And if you think we can't have a Middle Eastern style violence, I mean, we've already seen it. But these are very scary thoughts. But you are going to need patriots at the ready. And we will be there for you, no matter what the outcome of this election is. Again, you can always catch me, D. Horowitz, at blazemedia.com. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. And thank you for listening. Thank you.